Hello and welcome to the Australian Chamber Orchestra podcast. The music we're hearing now is from the third movement of Beethoven's Sonata for Violin No. 9, which is the centerpiece of a new concert series by the ACO entitled Beethoven and Bridgetown. Of course, the name of Beethoven needs little introduction, but you might be forgiven for not knowing the second name, Bridgetower. However, you may be more familiar with a different name, Kreutzer, or at the very least with the Kreutzer Sonata, which is the name usually given to the Beethoven Violin Sonata No. 9. But fewer people know that the original dedicatee of the sonata, and indeed the man who first played it, was an incredible violin prodigy of mixed Polish and West Indian origins, by the name of George Polgreen Bridgetower. And while the name Kreutzer has gone down in history, it's been immortalized not only in its relation to Beethoven, but also in relation to the works that Beethoven's sonata has inspired. And this includes a scandalous novella by the Russian author Lev Tolstoy, and in turn, a string quartet by the Czech composer Leos Janacek. Meanwhile, the name of Bridgetower the man whose dazzling virtuosity inspired this work, and the man who premiered it, has been largely forgotten. If this seems a bit unfair to you, well, you're not alone. For their new concert series, the ACO and their artistic director Richard Tonietti are determined to put Bridge Tower back in the history books. And they've enlisted writer and pianist Anna Goldsworthy to help tell his story and also how it relates to the other incarnations of the Kreutzer Sonata in literature and music. We'll be joined both by Richard and Anna on the podcast, and we'll also hear some excerpts of these two works, Beethoven's Violin Sonata No. 9 and Janacek String Quartet No. 1, to help us understand how this history has played out in music. So let's start at the beginning with the hero of the piece. Who was George Polgreen Bridgetower? Well, he was born in 1778 in Poland to a West Indian father and a German mother. The family moved to London, and his considerable musical talent was revealed quite early. He was giving successful violin concerts in the capitals of Europe by the age of 10. He was often exhibited in this kind of oriental garb and touted as the son of an African prince. In his early 20s, he visited Vienna and in 1803 was introduced to none other than Ludwig van Beethoven, who was so impressed by the talent of this young violinist that he wrote a new sonata, his ninth violin sonata for Bridgetower to perform, accompanied by Ludwig van himself on the forte piano. So Richard, tell us a little bit about how that first concert went down. So they performed this sonata early one morning in what year was it, 1803 or something, and... Um, you know, there's Beethoven beginning to go deaf. I think he'd, he'd written his, you know, Heiligenstadt Testament. You know, he, he's, um, but he's totally in love with this bridge tower. It's a real, you know, in modern parlance, bromance. And they spent many an hour improvising, having a wonderful time. They had to delay the performance because Beethoven hadn't, you know, um, completed the work in time. And... Beethoven's in awe of his playing, then they go out to a kneipe, a, a bar in Vienna, and they have a falling out. This falling out is all the more regrettable, as Beethoven has until then been truly musically inspired by his younger colleague, 
who stimulated Tim to write for the instrument in an entirely new style, a style brimming with virtuosity and energy. It's as though Beethoven has been presented with a new vehicle for his music, and in this violin sonata, he wants to take it for a spin and see what it can do. And by all accounts, Beethoven was really having the ride of his life. He loved Bridge Tower and loved his playing and was in awe of him. And Bridge Tower and he had, as I say, you know, had improvised and played all this stuff. And and Beethoven had found this new language um, for which we're very grateful, this new virtuosic um, liberated language. It, 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 even though it's quite, it's nine of ten sonatas, but Beethoven still had three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine symphonies to go. So, um, you know, he he wasn't Beethoven in Vienna of the Ninth Symphony, as we know it now. He was still an emerging artist, and he discovered this new virtuoso way of playing. Incidentally, the Beethoven by Lincoln Shoto, which was written for a fellow called Clement, um, was quite different. Clement's playing was more introvert. So he wrote for the person, so it seems, and Bridgetower was this great extrovert and extraordinary virtuoso. Of delight, possibly, you know, Beethoven hadn't heard before. And if that sonata itself is anything to go by, Bridgetower must have been quite an extraordinary violinist. In my research for this podcast, I found a post on a classical music forum where a violinist described playing the Kreutzer as like fighting an octopus in a phone booth with a pencil. The piano part is also extremely challenging, as is the interaction between the violin and piano, with moments of absolutely frenetic interplay. Most notable, though, is the sheer intensity of the writing, as though Beethoven is really pushing these instruments to their limits. It's one of the most hysterical works. Um, Not so much hysteria in in our notion of humour, but of pushing um, vocalizations to to the limit. So there's bellowing, there's hysterical shrieking. It's an extraordinary dramatic, if not melodramatic, first movement. And so you can really hear that screeching from the violin and those banging chords on the piano. And it really must have been great fun for Beethoven and Bridgetower to play. And if you're wondering what that might have sounded like, this recording we've been listening to on period instruments is pretty close to how the instruments of Beethoven's day would have sounded. It's a recording by Richard Tonietti on violin, obviously, with Aaron Helliard on forte piano. And while the first movement of the Sonata No. 9 is a headlong rush of energy, The second movement is much more measured and expansive. It's a theme and variations movement with four variations and a coda. It's in F major, which is an unusually distant key for a piece that's in A major as this is. And it was this movement that had the biggest impact on the listeners of the day. The audience at the time, I think it was 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning or something ridiculous. 
they encored, um, pleaded for the second movement to be encored twice. Twice. Nuts. And, um, and this is Beethoven unleashing his greatest unique sensibilities on the, the human ear with the lyrical beauty that you find in Italian opera and philosophical music of the highest possible order. As Peter Craven asked, is it, you know, meaning of life stuff? Yes, it is. Um, you know, if you could put words to it, it would be definitely, you know, Goethe. So, from the grand melodrama of the first movement, we shift to music of inwardness and perhaps even metaphysical profundity, and we just heard a bit of the second variation from that second movement. The final movement forms yet another stark contrast and is in the form of a light and brilliant tarantella. The fact that these three movements are so contrasting in style led critic and pianist Charles Rosen to call the Kreutzer a hybrid sonata a sonata whose pieces don't really fit together into an organic whole. And he wrote that the last movement in particular belongs in another sonata altogether. Charles Rosen criticised it as being sort of lightweight, but I think he missed the point historically. So it was quite normal pre-Bach to use a um, skipping 6-8-3-8-3 rhythm in a last movement for things. Um, you think of the Mozart, the Verdimento, you know, you've got the virtuosic movement often as the second movement, and then you sort of dance out of the room, you know, like a bum, bum, ba-da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum. That's a virtuosic movement in a B-flat Divertimento, for example, but then you finish with a skipping rhythm. And so it is with, with Beethoven that he uses a tarantella Um and yes, it is connected with the tarantula. Um, so it's, it's to get rid of the spiders, I think. Um, so you, 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 you use this trope in order to come down, maybe. It's the marijuana after the ecstasy. so good. Beethoven writes his greatest violin sonata yet, inspired and performed by Bridge Tower. It's played to rapturous acclaim. But why did such a fruitful artistic partnership end when it had only just begun? Well, the story goes that on that fateful night in the bar, Bridge Tower may have made advances on a woman that Beethoven was rather fond of, 
and who may even have been the woman that Beethoven famously described in a letter as his immortal beloved, a person whose identity is still a matter of ongoing historical debate. It's certainly possible that Beethoven might have felt somewhat overshadowed by his young friend. So Bridge Tower, quite literally, was tall, dark, very dark, and very handsome. And Beethoven, quite the opposite. Well, he was swarthy, but short and not very handsome, um, and a real moralist, you know. He wasn't a cavorter. He wasn't like Schubert or Brahms, so he didn't frequent brothels. So he took umbrage at his mate, his great mate, George's advances to what was possibly, you know, the immortal, uh, for the listener I'm putting my quotation fingers in the air, um, and it seems that they could have got into fisticuffs, but it resulted in him... Beethoven, um, crossing out Bridge Tower's name from the, the title page, the dedication. Instead, he dedicates the work to Rudolf Kreutzer, an eminent French violinist of the day, who, in possibly one of the worst calls in music history, refuses to play the piece and tells Berlioz that he finds it outrageously unintelligible. And this seems all the more unfair to Bridge Tower because all the hallmarks of Bridge Tower's own playing, a furious energy, ebullience, technical brilliance, are written all over the score. And so even though Bridge Tower's name isn't on the title page anymore, he's right there in the music. So if ever a first performer of a work deserved to have their name stamped on it, it seems that performer is Bridge Tower. And the desire to resurrect the original dedicatee of this sonata is of course well and good, but how do you do this in a concert? Well, as I mentioned, pianist and writer Anna Goldsworthy has been involved with this project from the outset, to make it into something more than just a standard classical concert. So Anna, how did you get involved? I think what happened was Richard just phoned me up sometime towards the end of last year and said we'd like to do a project about Beethoven in Bridge Tower and the Kreutzer Sonata, which, you know, separately was a piece of music and a story, I guess, that had always fascinated me. And I did have at home a few sort of key texts about it. One was this beautiful collection of poetry by the American Pulitzer Prize winning poet, the African-American Pulitzer Prize winning poet, Rita Dove called Sonata Melatica, which tells the story from of Bridge Tower's life, essentially. And the other was this really intriguing collection of writings, not just of Tolstoy's novella, the Kreutzer Sonata, but of all the sort of counter stories that arose around it, written by the members of the Tolstoy family. Sofia Tolstaya, for instance, actually wrote a counter story in which she included margin notes that sort of directly refer the reader to the pertinent passages in Tolstoy's text. And then alongside those, there are sort of beautiful journal entries and so on. And I guess, you know, beyond that, I've always loved the Arnachek Kreutzer Sonata as well. And I've never, you know, as a pianist, I haven't probably had an opportunity to get my hands on it. Hmm. So it just struck me that there was so much material, so many ways in. There'd been so much talk about this sonata, the Kreutzer Sonata, and it sort of spawned 
not just one work, but generations of work, mm -hmm. that I was really interested to go back to where it all began. And I think that's the story that interested Richard too. And that's, of course, the collision between Beethoven and this virtuoso um, bridge tower. One thing that strikes me as particularly curious about these three intergenerational Kreutzer Sonata stories is that each one seems to be based around a love triangle. So triangle number one, the story of Beethoven, Bridge Tower, and perhaps the immortal beloved, who inspired such jealousy in the composer that he was ready to rupture a friendship and burgeoning musical partnership. Tolstoy's short story of 1889, entitled The Kreutzer Sonata, tells of another triangle. In the story, a narrator, Poznashev, recounts to fellow passengers of a train the story of how his wife formed a musical relationship with a violinist, and together they decided to play Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata. One day he returns home early from a trip, finds the violinist alone with his wife, and, assuming they are lovers, kills her with a dagger. The power of Beethoven's music has supposedly goaded them into sin. It's a grisly story, and one which might strike today's reader as somewhat puritanical and even misogynistic. All the more so that Tolstoy was keen to point out, in an epilogue to the novella, that he intended it not as a condemnation of murder, but as a condemnation of carnal love, which he saw as a hindrance to living a life in the service of some higher, more noble cause. The woman-hating overtones of this work were not lost on Czech composer Leos Janáček. He was not only a great connoisseur of Russian literature, but he was also involved in an extramarital triangle of his own. In 1917, he fell deeply in love with a woman by the name of Camilla Stoslova, despite the fact that they were both married and that she was almost 40 years his junior. While the composer's love for Stoslova seems to have been both unrequited and unconsummated, it nonetheless generated an intense correspondence, numbering over 700 letters. Janáček's obsession with this young woman inspired him to model lead characters in his operas after her, and apparently spawned several of his major works, including the Glagolitic Mass and the Sinfonietta. So much for Tolstoy's assertion that carnal love couldn't lead to anything worthwhile. For his day, Janáček had an unusually relaxed attitude to questions of marital fidelity, and he viewed the wife in the Kreutzer Sonata as an innocent victim. And so he intended his string quartet number one to represent the cruel fate that has befallen her. In a letter to Camilla, Janáček writes, I was imagining a poor woman, tormented and run down, just like the one Tolstoy describes in his Kreutzer Sonata. And so Richard, to what extent does Janáček's moral protest actually come across in the music? I used to always say this, uh, well, always. I, I said it a number of times, my colleagues would laugh at me, that it's a musical diatribe with, with Tolstoy, but I, I'm quite convinced that it is. At one point, he has a coded message to free enslaved womankind. And he, it, it's, it's like a hip-hop diatribe. He's, he's, he's telling Tolstoy to fuck off. You know, he's really saying, you're, you're a dickhead. This, these attitudes towards women are repulsive. And now anything more than that, I can't really comment because it's it's all quite hidden, but we know that that's why he entitled it so. But from what I've I, I've researched, definitely, uh, yeah, he he he's taking on he's taking on Tolstoy rather than adding to Beethoven. 
One thing that makes it easy to ascribe human drama to Janacek's music is his use of speech rhythms. The composer apparently would note down interesting rhythms that he'd hear in people's everyday speech and use these in his work to create music that talks to us with the cadence of our own language. Janacek was also a pioneer of the use of folk music and believed that the rhythms of folk music, unlike those of academic or concert music, were based on the natural prosody of speech. And so we find throughout his work these little bursts of speech-like rhythm, for which Janacek coined a term, schasivka, a word that comes from the Czech word chas, meaning time. And these can be thought of as little flashes of time, or little rhythmic units. In the music, they sound like unfinished phrases, which often interrupt each other, much like people do in conversation, giving a sense of a perpetually unfolding discourse. In the opening of the very first movement, we hear a chasuka phrase where the upper strings are interrupted by a question from the cello. And in the third movement, a slow, mournful canon in the first violin and cello is interrupted by a frenzied Chasovka figure on the viola and second violin. And Janacek often uses this Chasovka device to add an unexpected spark of dynamism to a slow passage. And here's the Chasovka. Janacek's String Quartet No. 1 is a four-movement work, and some critics have read into it an exact mirroring of Tolstoy's storyline, the first movement supposedly representing the fears that accompany the failure of this marriage, the second movement, the furtive encounter with the new admirer, the third, the husband's growing suspicion, and the fourth, the murderous act itself. Tonietti warns against this kind of speculation. The problem you see with musicology, as you you know, only to uh, you can get stuck down the the rabbit hole of conjecture, and it serves as a distraction. But with this particular piece, you could read lots of things into it. For example, at the end, it's got this incredible rhythm. And that must be the train and the horse as the, the perpetrator. The, um, the cuckold is uh, rushing home to commit the, you know, the necessary murder. And so here we have two great works for strings, both absolutely packed with drama, and also three incredible stories, each as passionate as the music itself. The question is, how do you get all this across on the concert stage? There's not so much a single plot, I suppose. Maybe it's more like a series of variations on a theme or on certain themes, and those themes are music, the nature of love, the nature of friendship, the nature of jealousy whose story gets to be told and who gets to be remembered. And the way it's been, I suppose, composed more than anything else structurally is that the use of text 
replicates in some way the musical process. So by that I mean the Janáček work, the Kreutzer Sonata, is classic Janáček in that it's digressive, it's almost like a series of mosaics, it's quite sort of fragmentary. And in that sense, it's quite chattery too, you know, he would transcribe speech rhythms. And so in that sense, it's a work that lends itself well to, I think, absorbing fragments of text. We're not showing the text during the movements. Uh, actually, we've got surtitles during the movements, which kind of advance the story or take us backward in time oh, okay. um, through what happened to these quotes and artists. But interspersed between the movements, the orchestra, members of the orchestra are going to be giving voice to certain key protagonists in the story. And in many ways, I think the orchestra probably symbolises the chatter of history or our notions of, our received notions of these works and, and what they've been. So we'll have a member of the orchestra being Tolstoy, we'll have one being Janacek, we'll have one being Beethoven, and, you know, so on. Then by the time we get to the Beethoven Kreutzer Sonata, Richard's arrangement of the Kreutzer Sonata, it's very different structurally to the Janacek. It's sort of much more singular in its aspect. And Richard has reconceived it as a type of violin concerto, which I think it lends itself to, or as a piano, as a violin sonata, it's very concerto style. And so this notion of the solo voice emerges at that point. And at the same time as that happens, our sort of focus contracts or narrows to the figure of Bridge Tower, who will be represented on stage by a, a small boy of colour, and to Rita's very, very beautiful poetry, which in two poems in particular, seek to restore the primacy of Bridge Tower to the story. One is called, um, fittingly, The Bridge Tower, and that's where the concert ends. But how did the story end for Bridge Tower? Certainly being removed as the dedicatee of the sonata can't have helped his path as a musician, which, after such a promising start, went gradually downhill after his meeting with Beethoven. It seems he died in abject poverty, like Vivaldi, and like Mozart, well, to an extent, in, in London. Um, and he was just teaching piano and telling stories. But imagine saying, Francis, you know, at the end of your life, oh, I, I played with Beethoven, <laughs> dedicated this sonata, you know, and he's telling these stories. But imagine saying that. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a tragedy, a real tragedy. So we're putting him back into the history books. And we've known for quite some time that Bridge Tower was the original dedicatee of the work. This isn't a new piece of scholarship that's suddenly come to light. Why is it particularly important to tell this story today? Well, I think this notion of disappearance and who is remembered and who is forgotten is a really interesting one. And it cuts across race and it cuts across gender. And I think the more we can find these other stories, I mean, Rita, I think, puts it particularly beautiful, beautifully in which she said, you know, if things had been a little bit different, you know, if they had Beethoven and Bridge Tower, essentially they fell out, probably over a woman. Um, but, you know, if that hadn't happened and all of these different things hadn't occurred, then Bridge Tower's name would have been the name that went down in history. And that would have been a powerful name to go down in history because, you know, it would have encouraged others, um, you know, other young musicians of colour. And certainly for young black musicians today, there aren't a lot of role models in classical music, particularly in the classical period. It's pretty much just Bridge Tower, and then the other one being Chevalier de St. George, a man who was called in his day the Black Mozart. Uh, it's an interesting story that you might want to look up as well. And so 
In a year where issues of race are at the forefront of people's minds, it seems like any discussion of the Kreutzer Sonata really needs to mention its original dedicatee. You know, even five years ago, it was, or 10 years ago, when the last time we did it, it was there, but it wasn't resonating with such um, profound intensity. And so the, you'd be nuts not to shine a light on this. It's just the right time to tell this story. The Australian Chamber Orchestra's Beethoven and Bridge Tower series opens on March 18th at the Newcastle Town Hall and then runs from March 23rd to 28th at the City Recital Hall in Sydney. The program will also be available to stream online as part of the ACO StudioCast program, available at aco.com.au. I'm Francis Merson. Thanks for listening.